You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by YG2D, a 501c3 nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. To find out more, visit www.yg2d.com. I feel like at this point in our relationship, it's important to admit to you, like I did with Michelle, that I have a little bit of a crush on her, okay? That might be weird, but you try reading all of her books and not ending up with a little crush, okay? There are so many reasons beyond my obvious obsession with mortality that I love doing You're Going to Die. And this conversation in this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast, hi, welcome to your Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. My name's Ned. I am your host. So I love a lot of things about what I get to do with You're Going to Die. And one of them has been the history of my time in San Francisco producing events, especially our open mic, You're Going to Die Poetry, Prose, and Everything Goes. So this conversation with Michelle is so cool because I get to engage with them about mortality and how they use writing and art and their work in the world to engage with their being mortal. But what I especially love about this conversation is that it gave me a chance to connect to part of the history that I feel like our events are in the lineage of. And I don't mean as wonderful as what Michelle's done with her events, as well-known, as important for the culture of San Francisco, but I do feel like there's lineage there, like the ancestry of events. I came to San Francisco because of the beats. Like that was my first way of falling in love with the city. And so I've always felt like a connection all the way back to that. And I felt that with Michelle and I feel that with her event series, Sister Spit. And I feel that about the fact that those events, they have to be like a precursor to what could happen for what I did with You're Going to Die, Poetry, Prose, and Everything Goes in 2009. Like there's, there has to be a connection. Well, if there isn't for anyone else, there is for me. So I want to say this is such a great conversation to talk about Michelle's work, but it was especially precious to have her on the show and get to talk about the history of her time in San Francisco and what she did with her writing and her work and her community in the ways she did it. So Super happy to share this episode with you and this conversation with Michelle T. Michelle is the author and editor of over 20 books, most recently Knocking Myself Up, a memoir of my infertility slash in slash fertility. She's the recipient of honors from the Guggenheim Foundation and Penn slash America, the creator of Drag Queen Storytime and publisher of Dopamine Books, a partnership with Semiotext. I... Don't think there's any more needed here to just say, welcome, good to be in your ear. Hope you enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Michelle T. Um, It's really inspiring to me. I'm like, oh shit, a death practice is a thing. Like I need a death practice. Like we all need a death practice. You know, I love this idea of sort of formalizing in some way or ritualizing, um, 
just like a consciousness about our, our mortality um, and not, not mm-hmm. in a way where like, you know, I'm formalizing it and that I'm going to lay in bed and freak out about it every night before I fall asleep. But like, I'm going to formalize it in a way that like, how can I approach this in a way that's like thoughtful and adds meaning to my life and, you know, draws yeah. from the traditions of other humans who've also grappled with it. And so I feel like she really does that. And, you know, her, her books are about, for, they're for artists to, um, to embrace their, their creative, um, practice at whatever stage you're at. And, um, to the fact that, she has a death practice behind that is really powerful. Cause it's like, yeah, you're just here and we're going to die. So you're not going to another, you're not going to get another chance. Like you can't wait for it to be perfect. Like you can't wait for yourself to become an ascended human. Um, and then write your perfect book or paint your perfect masterpiece. It's like, it's just the here and now. Um, Mm. and you know, we, we forget about that or we try to forget about that. And I think it, you know, if we let it in, in a motivating way, I think it can be really cool. Yeah. I, I so appreciate that. And I, I love you acknowledging, like, we can't just lay it in bed at night, tripping out about, uh, I mean, we certainly can, but you know, there's other things, there's other ways also to like engage with it. Maybe. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking of one of your essays in, in against memoir that just straight up says like you woke up, you're in the middle of the night, lay next to your son thinking, Oh my God, there's not a God. Oh my God, there's not a God. That's my words, not yours, but a version of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I guess for me thinking about this, this chapter in the book coming in, it's like you early on are, were already driven to write and, and, and so clearly like, when did this chapter emerge and add any other need for you to be clear? Like, this is what I must do. I mean, I guess there's a question in there that, that has me wondering if you need the reassurance over all these years of your work to be like, this is it. You're right. Keep going. And by the way, here's another reason why you're going to die maybe tomorrow, you know? (laughs) I mean, I've wanted to write, I felt the urge or even compulsion to write since I was really young, you know, it hit me, you know, when I was probably like around, I don't know, eight or something, um, kind mm-hmm. of the age my son is at now. And I was a really in- heavy reader. I loved reading and it just was like, well, I just want to do that. I want to be part of that world. I want to, I want to write a book, you know, and try to write books and started like a newspaper in second grade and just, you know, was writing poems and just, I, mm-hmm. you know, I, it's something that was always with me. Um, and that became a little bit of the way I understood myself, I wouldn't say an identity necessarily, but maybe a little bit like, not that I was like talking about it. Um, but I just knew that about myself and Mm. I just, uh, started taking it seriously, I guess when I landed in the early nineties in San Francisco, having like dropped out of college and had a relationship tank. And I was like, what am I doing with with my life? Like, it's time now to ask that question. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not like in school or like working towards some vague future. Like this is the future. And writing was just the thing that had always been there. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I was like, maybe I can just be a writer and like, not in a way that like, maybe I can support myself, but like, maybe that's how I can occupy my time. Maybe that is the focus to give my life meaning. Um, Maybe that's my point. And what's really cool is that it happened at this moment where there was this huge explosion of open mics, um, Mm -hmm. all through San Francisco. And I was like, Oh, and I can just do it right here. There's like a place for it. Um, I don't know if I would have taken it quite so seriously if I didn't have that space to bring it because I'm kind of like action oriented. I think that if I just was spinning my wheels alone, I might've burnt out after a point and moved on to something else. Well, yeah. I mean, you even say in one of your lines in your book is, 
you you maybe wouldn't write if there wasn't a place for someone to like read it or receive it. Do you still yeah. feel that way? I mean, I think I do. And like sometimes I think that person who's going to receive it is like a person like a million years from now after this civilization is tanked and like a manuscript is found in a dust rubble yeah, and somebody's like, it's the, it's the life of a human or ancestor, you know, like it doesn't need to be necessarily, I don't know. I need to envision that, you know, that there's someone on the other end of the line. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I so appreciate that. I feel like a lot of my work is that like, where will this be? Where would this land? Where would this yeah. like belong to someone else and like be turned into something maybe even like different from what I meant it to be, mm-hmm. but like that it hasn't a, like a legacy of of going on yeah. after me too, you know? Totally. I, I what I don't think I got in in your book. I just want to take a minute to to say that moment when you first went to an open mic and read that poem, you know, the first time. And by the way, forgive me, I'm reading, you know, sharing all the stuff and questions come from writing that I know you, you haven't revisited for some of it, maybe like over a decade. So you can be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> make it more clear or move on to a new question. But okay. just thinking of that first time when you went to an open mic and read your first piece, you know, how, how did that, how did that, feel afterwards you remember that very first moment um I do maybe what yeah go ahead I do remember it I remember the poem that I read it's in my Mm. collection the beautiful um it was uh a poem about you know when when I landed in San Francisco like I said I was kind of on the heels of a breakup that had happened in Arizona and the poem was about it and I was really nervous, obviously. Um, and I didn't necessarily know if my poem was any good or not. Like I had a lot of energy from it. Um, and the energy felt good, but I didn't know that that I didn't know what to make of that, but Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, like, just think about, I mean, you know, it was the early nineties. So the eighties were still rather close. And so it was like my home, my home life and stuff. And I just thought about like growing up in my home and all of the, the media that my family enjoyed that I hated, that I thought was utter trash, but is also like quite popular. And I was like, somebody likes everything, you know, like tons of people like stuff that I think is terrible. Like there could be one person in this audience that likes this poem. And so I'm going to read it for, for them. Like that was my, my mindset. And so I read yeah. this poem, I read it in poetry voice like this, because I thought that's what I should do. And at the end of it, this like, voice. Sh- right. <laughs> shaved head, like Dyke came up to me and was like, thanks a lot for your poem. I really liked it. And mm. I was like, Oh, cool. Thanks. And like, mm. that was everything. I was like, Oh, that's and who it. liked it? Like the, the one like visibly queer person in the audience, like received it. And you know, that made me super happy. And I was like, okay. Mm. And it had felt good up there to kind of like embody the poem. I really yeah. liked how that felt. And I was like, I'm going to keep doing this. Well, yeah, I want to be, cause I have so many feelings about your work and your writing that it's funny to be like, we're talking about death and mortality, but I still have these other threads I want to pull on that matter to me. Sure. And I think one of them is that, you know, like the performance side of your being in the world. And, and, you know, I know how many books you've written. Certainly it's like, it doesn't require that, but also this all came out of what you just described and maybe mm-hmm. not first you were writing alone to yourself at eight years old, but to have the performance really like, and, and maybe sister spit might be a place to stop and revisit one of my earlier questions, which is, um, first I want to say 
let's talk about the performance part of you being in the world and how that that your career of writing maybe is built on that and has it interwoven and i do want i do wonder about sister spit when i'm talking to you about the open mics that we do as a place to like belong, find belonging and connectivity and remember you're not alone and maybe that's like one of the highest important goals of that space really because we're not going to make death better necessarily like the grief that gets expressed won't go away mm-hmm. but we for sure sure might leave an event feeling connected and remembering we're not alone. So by the way, here's my like signature 50 questions in one question. Uh, So just to be, just to be extra clear, it is the, can we talk a bit about the performing aspect of your career? Cause I'm just curious about that and what it means to you and, and your theories on it, whatever you have to share and then go back to sister spit and what it meant to like run that series, maybe in ways that connects to some of what I shared about our open mics. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the way that I came into writing and like producing, producing writing and thinking of myself as a writer, I didn't think about getting published. I wasn't thinking about a book because that just seemed like, how the hell does anyone write a book? Like that just seemed wild. Um, so I never thought of that. And I did think, you know, again, just being sort of like goal oriented in a little way, but more just sort of like, you know, it was almost a practical question more than a career question of like, what am I doing with this? Where does this go? Where does this live? And it seemed like the stage was a place, Oh, it can live right here. That's great. Mm. You know? And so, um, knowing that that's what I was writing for, I was writing work that was going to be read aloud. Um, it definitely shaped the kind of writing I was doing the way I wrote, you know, I wanted to have a particular rhythm. I wanted it, you know, it had to be five minutes or less. It had to, you know, also thinking about, the crowds at the open mics at the time in the nineties, I mean, they were really rowdy. They were drunk. Like a lot of them were out. There's a lot of assholes in the audience. Um, mm-hmm. And so you needed something that sort of, to me, to sort of um, combat that a little bit, it needed to be big. You know, it wasn't a place for quiet work. It wasn't really a place for, you know, and that's changed obviously, but the, in that moment, it was very punk. It was very like street. It was very hip hop. Um, it was very informed, I think by, so much of the activism that was happening in the nineties and what the nineties were, um, culturally, Mm -hmm. politically. So yeah, I want, it was like, I wanted to say big things and elicit big responses. So big laughs, big gasps, like big, like anything. Um, so it was a little, um, bombastic and, you know, I, it, it was received. And so it encouraged me sort of to continue on that, on that way. And it wasn't until, I think my third book, The Chelsea Whistle, which was the first book that I actually wrote as a book. My first two books Mm -hmm. were actually compilations of pieces that had originally been written to be read aloud. So they, you know, in the, in the creation of all of those chapters, I was really like, boom, boom, boom. But when I sat down to write The Chelsea Whistle, I was like, oh, this is going to be a book. Like I don't have to worry about like, you know, topping the drunk in the corner and like being bigger Mm -hmm. somehow than that energy. Like I can be smaller and more lyrical and I can like wax poetic if I want and that was really nice. But, um, but that, that initial sort of, you know, my work is meant to be spoken, to be read aloud, to be performed is really part of the DNA of my voice now. Um, yeah. so anything that I write, I do like it to have that oomph to it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I like to know that there's, you know, at least a lot, a lot of parts of a book that will work to be read out loud in a performance. 
Mm. And Sister Spit came as a result of those open mics that I'm talking about with the drunks in the corner. And, you know, yeah. I have a personality type that I was fine getting up there and getting in a fight. Like I was like, Oh, I'd love to, I'd love to get in a fight with a stranger tonight. <laughs> like it just was where I was at in my twenties. And, yeah. um, obviously not everybody feels that way. And a lot of writing, um, by, women and queer people, um, is really vulnerable, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I really understood that not everybody wanted to go up and read their vulnerable poem about abuse to a crowd full of drunk guys. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I was approached by Cindy Anderson, who now is a filmmaker. She made the uh, tremendous film, the punk singer about Kathleen Hanna. Mm -hmm. Um, at the time she was new to San Francisco from Chicago, where she had been a dancer and a spoken word artist. And she wanted to start an all girl, open mic in San Francisco. And some folks kind of pointed her towards me and was like, she does that stuff. You should talk to her. So I was just meeting with her almost like, Oh yeah, that's so cool. You should do that. Invite this person, invite that person. This person's great. And she was like, do you just want to do this with me? And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, let's do it together. Mm. Um, and the very first night we did it, there was a line around the block out the bar. So many, girls, you know, AFAB female identified people showed up and and what we suspected was true that, you know, it was uh, San Francisco at the time was a city that was teeming with queer women. I mean, it was like such a, it was just an incredible moment and they weren't really showing up at any of the open mics. Like I was there, mm -hmm. Cindy was there, Ali Liebegott, Marcy Blackman. Those were the only like queer females, Daphne Gottlieb. Those only folks that were there. And then all of a sudden you're like, boom, oh my God, there's look at all these people that were just waiting for a place oh, that yeah. they felt like it made sense for them to bring their work and it would be right. received in the way they wanted it to be received. That, that's, uh, that seems so key to me. I, I see, even the event we did last night, you have people coming, you know, grief obviously is this emotional theme and so much other stuff gets in there too uh, at our events. But to have people articulate just what you said right now. And I'm, I'm not trying to heavy handedly say like, we're doing the same thing, but I wonder about open mics, maybe specifically, and these kind of communal spaces for sharing our creativity and our, our human experience and, and, and feeling like you just said, where is the place where I can name the thing that I can't name at a lot of other places and do it in a way, not that it wouldn't sometimes be create conflict, but that mostly do it in a way with a community who's like, fuck yes. Like I'm right yeah. there with you. I'm thinking of stuff you said in your book around the nineties too. I love that you, you say like the vulnerability of that community, how that is what got expressed, but also some, some of your writing talks about the rage and anger during that, you know, decade, early nineties, especially, and how you're fucking, I'm paraphrasing, but like a weirdo, if you're not completely enraged and <laughs> thinking the space too, and maybe sister spit, even the name kind of connects to that. It's like, this is the place to like name that, that anger. Do you feel yeah. like for me in our events, it's like grief. And that's obviously maybe not as much of because of the time we're in, even though I do think that that's true, it's maybe more about the invitation the space offers and, but true then for you, right? Historically angry, maybe time to be angry and here's the place to be angry. Like, cause that's the invitation right here. Does that feel right? I mean, yeah, it definitely feels right. And you know, um, every sister spit started as a weekly open mic and every single week me and Cindy would perform and Cindy's work in particular was super angry. You know, she was doing these like slam style poems. It was like before this, a little before the slam, I think, or maybe concurrent with the slam, but it was just loud, bombastic, full of curse words, yelling, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, and so, yeah, she really, 
laid a groundwork of like, yeah, that's welcome here. You know, like Mm -hmm. this is her open mic and look at what she's doing. So yeah, we invite you all to, you know, try to make some art out of how incredibly pissed off you are, you know? Yeah. It was definitely a great place for that. And, you know, of course, anger among, you know, this group of people was not very welcome in the world. You know, women historically aren't supposed to get angry, um, queer rage. I mean, we'd seen a lot of it from through ACT UP, um, and you know, all of the, the organizing around AIDS and queer nation. So, you know, there, there was like a precedent for queer rage for sure. And I think mm-hmm. we were informed by that, you know, at that time, Yeah. but, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was great to have a place to bring that beyond just mm-hmm. like waiting for, you know, a protest to pop up where you yeah. can yell in the street. Yeah. Right. Um, I so appreciate that. I'm also tripping out on like doing that event every week. Oh my gosh. Like how Thank you for that, that acknowledgement. <laughs> At the time, all open mics were every single week and gosh, they were free. They were labors of love wild. every week. The, you know, promoters were organizing, booking the featured readers, too, doing right. their promotions, making a new flyer every week, getting it up around oh the fucking city, gosh, hanging it Michelle. in cafe windows. I know. And it's really funny. Like, you know, once we stopped and, and, you know, the culture shifted and now, you know, open mics were like maybe once a month. I was like, you fucking, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but no, I mean, it's okay. It's okay. But the thing that was really crucial is that that really created a culture, you know, it was constant. Writers were writing every week because they wanted Mm -hmm. to have something to bring to sister spit because it became very popular. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be a part of it. And me too. Like I wanted to be part of it. Even as I was hosting it, I wanted new work to share. And so it made me, it made me write almost on a daily oh, basis. Yeah, it gave me, totally. it gave me a writing practice, you know? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. I mean, the only thing I compare now is we've started doing like grief because of the pandemic, a lot of our stuff we've, we've made available online. And so we do this grief mm-hmm. release every week and, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm both saying like, of course, that's why it's worthwhile. Everything you just described. And I'm, I'm also just <laughs> acknowledging like Jesus, like how much work yeah. and, and it was and, a lot of work. Revolutionary, it's a revolutionary to me to be like, this is free and it's, constantly available and like yeah. what builds what builds out of that like the influence however immeasurable yes. what builds yeah it created a culture yeah absolutely like yeah it created a culture yeah. it's just the way that like a bar is always there right or like yeah. a club like a like a nightclub has its every week you know things were just weekly then um yeah. so it didn't make sense to do it less than that it's like we we really had a momentum um and yeah, we like mm. really had our lives built around it. Now I feel like the only thing that's every week is like 12 step recovery meetings. It's the only <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> regularly yeah. recurring All the time. All the time. gathering. Uh, yeah. I, so I want to, I'm not, I, I don't mean to like force the death stuff. Uh, a ton, no, we got to force it. Want, People are know, here. People are tuning right, cool. in for death like, talk. Listen, yeah. We're so excited about all your writing stuff. Uh, let's talk about <laughs> mortality. Um, okay. no, it means a lot to like, get this background in the history and, and feel like chills listening to you. Cause there's ways I emotionally connect to like, again, like, you know, I'm white male, cis male. I'm not trying to be like, we're the same, but just what it means to like commit to community regularly yeah. in this urban, especially urban uh, environment and like build that like connectedness and, and continue a conversation, you know, that matters yeah. to people. Yeah. Cause totally. that's what you did. Totally. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, you stopped. You know, I'm thinking about yeah. endings, and and I'm and I'm mm-hmm. for some reason I'm thinking about you. And this this will all get. I think I can connect all this into your writing and, and mortality. So just bear with me. But I'm thinking of you laying next to your son, and you write about this in one of your essays and against memoir. 
and you imagine like the 16 year old you, like the angel of, of that young you, like flying above you and like this like dead part of you, this thing that will never return. And, and for some reason that's coming up with what it must have meant to do sister spit all that time. And then like, when was it the letting go? When was it the like, this needs to die, this needs to end and, right. and what's next out of that? And do you sometimes feel, okay, I'll stop there. I'll stop. Yeah, there. yeah, I, no, that's I had a like great three question. Three more questions that started tumbling. Forth, but I'll stop there. <laughs> you know, the the large the the large answer is sister spit is a thing that will not die. It is like undead all the time. It keeps reviving. But for the open mic, we did it as a, a you know weekly open mic for two years. And, you know, another reason why it was possible to do that was because the community supported it. People kept showing up every week, right? We always had a crowd and we would have lulls sometimes and uh, the crowds would be very sparse. And maybe we, me and Cindy weren't super excited by the work that was coming up. And we're just like, Oh, it's a time Mm -hmm. to maybe let go of this. And then, you know, another surge would happen and we're like, Oh, it's fun again, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then a lull happened again for a while. And Cine disputes this, but I swear part of it was that poets and writers stopped coming and we kept getting inundated with folk singers and yeah. people were bringing their guitars in and, you know, <laughs> a lot of the work. Why does she dispute that, do you think? I mean, because I'm like, like, for sure, I came happened. on like the late back end of like a ton of singer songwriters out there right? just trying to be like, I'm going to move you. I'm going to move you. Yeah. <laughs> Like maybe she thinks I'm exaggerating it and maybe I am, you know, but it would be just sort of like so many acoustic musicians. And then also like, they're always doing covers. Like I'm like, poets aren't getting up here and reading Sylvia Plath. Like they're reading their work. Like, why are you singing like, you know, Rocky Raccoon or Ani DeFranco covers? Like, no. And so finally we were like, okay, we're going to stop. That's what did it. Wow. I wasn't inspired anymore yeah. and it wasn't the That's fun the thing that it had right? been. Yeah. It is. It has to be, I think, um, especially compelled. when, you know, yeah. yeah, when it's a labor of love, especially it's mm-hmm. like one thing if it's your J-O-B, but it's like, why am I doing this? Um, mm-hmm. And I remember I, I told Eileen Miles, who's, you know, a really important person to me as yes. a human and a writer. Mm-hmm. And I remember they were like, yeah, it's, it's good to quit things. And I was like, oh, all wow. right, cool, cool. Okay. Got yeah. that blessing. And after that, that I, um, it is. I, I started playing drums and I was in a couple of bands and, and spent some time doing that. And so I was writing a little bit less and uh, exploring being in bands. And it was really funny. Like I found the camaraderie around the musicians to be like, not at all what it was with writers. I felt like writers were so supportive of each other and had each other's backs. And it was such a community. And what I found in that moment in the music scene was a lot of competition, a lot of like like I just kind of like pop into a show and be like, Oh, hi, cool. We're, you're the band we're playing with. And it'd be like, yeah, you know, and it was <laughs> stuff like cool. that. And I was like, Oh yeah, it was very cool. And I was like, Oh, I don't know if I like this. And you know, I, my bands were pretty dysfunctional and, uh, they fell apart. And then what I had taken from the experience of having been in the bands is, you know, we got to go on a little tour. One of us, one of the bands, we went up the Pacific Northwest and I loved that experience Mm. so much. Um, I don't drive, but I totally have like, I hugely romanticize like road trips and being on the road. And so getting to do that with other like queer people and weirdos and like sleep in the van and crash on people's floors and get to see the country was really exciting. And I was like, what if we did that? with poets. Mm. Like my band kind of sucked and we were able to pull it off and like make gas money. Like these writers we know are legit, really good. Like what if we did it? And so 
we booked it as a tour to get around the country and back with doing shows almost every night to keep putting gas in the car. We were gone for like two months, you know, over a month, not two months over like a little, about a solid month, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, took two vans, took all these writers. And again, because we were still in that era in the nineties when spoken word was really popular. And by now the slams were happening and they were getting a lot of attention. Um, crowds were showing up everywhere, everywhere we went, Mm -hmm. we had audiences. It was shocking. Like I remember us walking into a place in Athens, Georgia, and it was really crowded and we were there a little early and it was a coffee shop too, or a bar. And I was like, Oh, I I was filled with dread. I was like, Oh man, we're going to have to tell all these people that poetry reading is going to start. And they're going to just be so annoyed with us. And they're going to like talk and, and, you know, clink their spoons during our reading. And they were all there to see us. By then people would do that, by the way. I mean, you're describing (laughs) things that would happen sometimes when you would go into a space and start reading poetry. Sure. Sure. I mean, you know, it wasn't, it, um, it was obviously really popular. I mean, popular enough to have a poetry stage at Lollapalooza. Right. But still, still poetry, still sort of alternative culture. Right. So sometimes, I mean, bizarrely, we got a lot of, um, I think our most hostile responses that we got would sometimes be at working class lesbian bars. Mm. Um, you know, where we rolled in being like elders. Oh my God, we're working class too. But you know, being like, I'm a poet on a tour, on a literary tour doesn't really scream working class. It screams like, where did you go to college and study poetry, which I didn't and neither did Cine. Right. But But, you know, that was the assumption. That was the assumption. There was a cultural gulf and we definitely walked into places where these like bar dykes were like, you turned off our fucking jukebox. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and we're like hostile and like, didn't want to hear us. Like Mm -hmm. didn't have, that sense of community with us. Mm -hmm. So that was very interesting. But you would go into a bar like you were describing and it'd be like, oh shit, like all these people are here for us. And by the way, worth noting, I mean, what year are we talking? It's not like you're on Twitter, like blasting this out. Oh God, no. No, 97, 98 and 99 Mm -hmm. were these big tours. And Mm -hmm. we got the word out by um, locating people in town, part of just like the queer diaspora, finding somebody in the town that we were going to asking like, will you put up flyers for us? Um, Sending press releases to the local papers the, mm. you know, the independent weeklies, whatever the little gay rags were at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was yeah. all just like wow. licking envelopes, big totally. envelopes, sending them out, doing oh two gosh. fundraisers, two fundraisers a month throughout the year mm. to get all the money. Cause we were broke. Like when I looked at my, I found when I finally did my taxes for that year, many years <laughs> later, I was like horrified. I was like, I made $10,000 that year. Like how what? did I fucking live? <laughs> like, I feel like I had a great year, you know, it was yeah. like amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's incredible. And, and also just yeah. a testament to like the compulsion, right? You, you're a poet, yeah. you're a writer, you know, it's like you fucking figure it out. And, yeah. um, that was what you did then. And to look back yeah. and be like, wow, how in the world, but also just incredible to know it's what got you here. It's like those stretches yeah. where it is that difficult, but it's not about that. You know, it's despite that. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. The difficulty was sort of exhilarating. Like we couldn't believe we were doing it. And mm. we were just like, we're going to just fucking do it. We just yeah. jumped in with both feet. We didn't have to make a budget for sister spit until years later when we were considering like, can we get a grant for this? And we had to sit down and do the budget. And when I saw on paper, how much money it took 
it was shocking to me. Mm. And I was like, if, if we had sat down right at the beginning and done a budget and been like, we can do this, but we need to, we, we need like $10,000. I would have been like, you mean what I make in a year? Like, that's not happening. We can't yeah. do it. Right. But we didn't think ahead. Mm. <laughs> we just did it, yeah. you know? And, it, and, and, that, and that was like the punk DIY spirit of the moment, you know? I just stop you for a moment, whatever's going on for you. I just, I want to use my voice in a way that really highlights that this is a special moment because I have a couple things to share with you and I have a request. And that is, first of all, I want to articulate that this podcast, I care about it so deeply. We care about it so much and it takes a lot of work. And it's like one of those weird things. I think musicians especially sometimes give me this sense, the musicians in my life, where you finish something, uh, maybe it's a book, but you finish a big work. And I, first of all, I don't want to compare a podcast episode to like what it means to put out an entire book or a album. But what I know about that is sometimes you don't know how it's received. And so we keep doing these every week. And it matters so much to get feedback, which we're getting more and more of, and that's so huge. You think about trying to get support for a podcast, something that absolutely isn't free to produce and takes a lot of hours every week to get an episode out every week for free for you. It takes a bunch of effort and time. I love when people contribute and donate and become patrons. And I love when people click the stars. And I love when I know they're sharing the episodes with the world, when I see people post about them on social media. Oh, this stuff matters to me so much. But I wanna say equally what matters to me is to get actually definitive feedback about why this podcast matters. Can I just read to you one of our reviews on Apple Podcasts? This is from Kohola Power. I hope I'm saying that right. Kojola Power? Uh, well, they say the subject is the healing realness. Every point of contact I've had with You're Going to Die is so authentically healing. I feel so welcomed, seen, and invited to participate in all my authenticity. The podcast conversations reach the depths of my existential fear, anxiety, and panic and help me cope and normalize all these things in a way where I can listen and metabolize instead of run away from my feelings. I can't explain the level of impact these conversations and opportunities have had for me, but it's a healing course correction for me on both small and massive arcs across my life. The music, the open mic, the spaciousness, the tears, the laughs, the writing prompts, and hugging us off the stage when necessary. That's something that we do at our live events. It's all exquisite, so needed, and so helpfully healing in the most real way. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Kajola Power. Thank you for taking time to write this out. Like, honestly, this is like fodder for me. It's it's fuel to get feedback like this. So that being shared now with all of you, thanks for listening to that and, and the articulation that that human being offers of what we're up to and all the ways that we're up to it. So yeah, also, we're not just a podcast. Connect to us through our website at yg2d.com. But if you're a listener of the podcast for the first time or ongoing and you haven't yet rated and reviewed the show, 
trust me just to know I'm out here and I'm going to get a message like this and you can hear how much it matters to me, go into your podcast app and rate and review the show. I cannot say it enough. It matters so much and it helps me to keep doing what I do undeniably. Thank you. I think it's really goes against um, other sort of presumptions or thoughts about writing memoir, which is that you're obsessing on your life and you're obsessing on things and you're not letting them go. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like the truth is somewhere in between. It's like, you do have to obsess on it a little bit to you're focusing on it. You're writing about it, but that doesn't mean you continue to carry it with you. I I do think there's something that is, it's not catharsis per se, but there is, it is like almost like a formal processing of it. Like I wrote the report on it. Okay. I filed the report. That's right. It's been filed, right. It's been accepted, stamped, received (laughs) the date and you know, next. So yeah, there is, there is something I think about that, that I think does help me move through experience or at least it's the way I'm wired in some strange way, Mm. mental illness, who knows, Mm -hmm. um, to move through my own experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little more right now about that? Like that line that you would tell your, your people that are participating in your workshops, like it almost like a reassurance uh, too. it seems like you're offering that, like writing's a mental illness. Uh, like what, (laughs) why is it reassuring? (laughs) It reassures me. Well, there's a lot of existential uh, pain in writing workshops I've come to understand. And a lot of it is just sort of like, why, why, why do this? What's the point, you know? And that's coming from a lot of different places. You know, some of it is like, yeah, you look at the big world of books and the history of books. And we all live in homes with bookshelves full of books that we're never going to get to read in this lifetime. Right. Cause we are all book hoarders. Right. Um, And it's, yeah. And you're like, Oh, what, what am I, what do I have to offer? You know, that sense that everything's already been written Mm. is there's truth in it. And then there's another thing of like, well, you know, why me? Like, why do I think, how dare I think that my life is so, so important, you know, um, or, you know, that, that need people need to read it. And, you know, I just feel like these are sort of the wrong questions and you're coming at things the wrong way. I, for me, I've just distilled it into like, I'm just compelled to write and, and, you know, I'm compelled I've been compelled in my life to do lots of things. And most of them aren't very good for me. And arguably writing has been amazing for me, but in some like more like interpersonal ways have, have been, you know, hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I can feel the similarities in that desire to write how physical it is and my compulsions towards other, other things that feel like akin to addiction, mental illness, whatever you want to call it. So I started sort of making that connection. And then I read this really incredible book called The The Midnight Disease. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the author's name right now, but she's wonderful. Yeah, you referenced it in in one of your essays. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've I've written a little bit about it because it really impacted me. You know, she was like a neuroscientist um, from like Harvard who had a miscarriage and experienced a big trauma and then became hypergraphic where she was compelled to just write about her life and document her life. And when people experience hypergraphia, it's not, they don't want to write fiction. They're not hypographically creating a a fictitious world and a plot. It's their, it's their own life. It's their own life. And I began writing in, I mean, like I said, I've always written. Um, but then I began writing really in earnest, um, 
almost hypographically um, on the heels of like becoming estranged from my family and having this huge trauma in my family happen. And I just related to this. I was like, wow, you know, I wonder how much of my writing output, my, my relationship with my writing is a bit connected to sort of like neurobiology, chemistry, Mm. what we call mental illness, you know? Um, It's just an interesting thing to think about. And I think that even, you know, everybody, whenever I tell writers that, you know, writing is a mental illness, our desire to write is a mental illness, everybody laughs because it's funny, but they laugh also because it's true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because everybody feels a little cuckoo right. from their right. writing, right? It's like you feel a little weird when you come out of a writing session. You're like, what did I just do? You know, what was happening? A lot of times you can't even remember what you did. It's strange, you know? And a lot of times it's um, it's it's irrational. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense necessarily to, to make the time in your life to do this thing, you know? We don't know. What are you even going to get out of it? There's no promises. Are you even good? Who knows? What does that even mean? There's so many unknowns that... But yet, in spite of that, we're so compelled to do it. So to me, it's helpful because it just, it kind of brushes away all of those questions, which are ultimately really self-defeating. Like, you know, what's the purpose? You know, all that. It's like, who cares? Like, and then I'm just, and I say also, you're going to die. We're all just killing time until we die. What do you like to do? What What feels meaningful to you? What gives your life a sense of meaning and purpose? You don't need to justify it. Nobody's going to ask you to like, again, file the report, like, okay, you know, prove to me why this it's like, it's, it's up to Mm -hmm. us how we create our life. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it might be, you know, neurobiological that why we, why we are so compelled to write, um, especially maybe those of us who write about our own Mm -hmm. lives. Um, but I just say that's okay. Well, I like that you, <laughs> it has to yeah, be right? right. What's the alternative? Right. I mean, and I think it is an acknowledgement for however weird it makes you feel or unsettling maybe, or there's yeah. also, I think what I was sort of speaking to about your work, I, I, I feel, which is like, what does it mean to process in the way we can with our writing that there's some kind of act and, you know, I don't, I, medicine sounds like kind of a woo woo word to use, but like, and healing too, you know, it's like, I'm not, I don't mean to use those words, but I mean something like it. I know. You know? Yeah, I know. I have trouble with those words yeah. too, but I also use them because they work, yeah. but they've just, I, I don't know. We, we got to take them back from the that's weird. Right. Okay. That's what we'll do. Eighties new age, like, I don't yeah. know. We, we need to reclaim it because healing is a real that's thing, right. you know, and, and medicine is a real yeah. thing. And, and, and so, I think probably, well, I won't get into my theories about why the words are weird, but what I want to say about the writing is, you know, I saw this meme recently, uh, of a list of like, here's what's going on for you. And here's the thing to do. And I think something, one of the, in the list was like feeling too much or feeling a lot. And the, the answer to that was like, right, you know, like write it down. And, and I think proven in so many of the spaces that you certainly clearly like facilitate and in the cancer patient workshops and the grief and healing workshops we do, it's like, I know that's what's happening. I actually said to you earlier, what happens in these spaces that we remember we're not alone and I'd make no promises that'll make it better or fix anything, especially fix anything. But actually lately, especially there's a part of me that does feel like something happens that makes it better when we write, not all the time, but that that actually is available, especially when we're doing it with community, but just sticking with the like, what does it mean to be in the process of writing there? Maybe there is something uh, that can be proven about like, it does make it a little better to like have that moment, you know, with what's going on Mm -hmm. in your life and in your emotional landscape in your mind and heart anyway. 
So I, I, I think yeah. both like mental illness, like with the alcoholism, you say, I, um, another moment of flippantly throwing out something that's hugely significant in your life, but you said like that. <laughs> I mean, I've written I, I so publicly about all of these things. Sorry, it's okay. okay. It's okay. No more, no more apologies. <laughs> it's like probably on my Wikipedia page. She's an alcoholic who had a yeah. miscarriage, you know? So but it's fine. you it's acknowledge fine. the difference. You're like, I'm done with that. And I made the choice like I needed to. And I made the difference. However much there was a time when it was like, I can't imagine what it would be like not to drink. I don't know who I would be, but you did it. And with writing, it's like, I don't want to know who I'd be without writing. Like, this is who I want to be, you know? Yeah, totally. Totally. Mm -hmm. And it makes, at this point, especially it makes my life happen. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine. Mm -hmm. I'd have to like win like the lottery in a really major I, there's way. No, there's no way. Writing. There's no way you would stop writing if you won the lottery. <laughs> Oh my God. I'd actually probably write with a lot more freedom if I won yeah. the lottery because I wouldn't have to worry about being, you know, selling yeah. a book or anything. I, I bet, I, I bet my writing would become yes. amazing. I should play the lottery Great. more often. <laughs> um, well, I want to, so I, I guess I, I sort of brought, I, I brought up the miscarriage chapter and did want to return to that as a chance for you. If you, cause I also mm -hmm. think, well, read the book, you know, I, I want, I, and I'll put links in the show notes and I will encourage whoever's listening that hasn't read, um, say against memoir as an example, but the long list of your writing to do so. And it feels like a moment to just maybe stay with a miscarriage and say like some of what you articulate in that chapter, which is what it meant to have people reach out and be like, yeah, that happened to me. And have you be like, oh my gosh, I had no idea how common this was. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, I wrote about it in my, um, in my memoir, knocking myself up, uh, a memoir of my infertility. Um, and it, yeah, it was exactly, it was exactly that. It was exactly, you know, I had been far enough along in my pregnancy that I had hit that, it, that time when, you know, you're like allowed to tell people that you're pregnant. It was like on, it was cuspy. It was a little on the cusp, but it wasn't beyond the pale. I wasn't, you know, like a week pregnant or something. Um, so I had told people cause I'm a big mouth. And also at that time I was blogging in real time, um, about my attempts to get pregnant on exojane.com. So, you know, I also had this place that I was bringing, mm -hmm. you know, the week's wrap up, you know, this week in fertility, here's I what happened. I didn't know that from reading so, the miscarriage essay, uh, that you were doing that. Yeah. Writing. Okay. Wow. I was. So it was also, I had just set up like the, mm -hmm. um, the terms of engagement, you know, were just very public, very real time. And I had committed to that. And obviously and with my history of writing, I'm pretty comfortable yeah. with that. Um, so, you know, it did felt very, it felt very vulnerable for sure to learn that I was miscarrying. It was like, Oh fuck. Like I thought, you know, being a writer and a narrator, like I was like, I didn't know this was the story. I thought I was in another story. You know, I was like happily trotting along this story, you know? Um, and now, you know, we're in another story and it was, it was terrible when it happened. It, I, I got the news the day before my wedding, um, the day of my, uh, what was it? Uh, the rehearsal dinner was happening that night. That morning I had an ultrasound. I was really excited because my mom was in town from Florida. Um, my then partner's mom was in town. We're like, let's all go and hear the baby's heartbeat. Oh, oh. fuck. There's no heartbeat, you know? And I was like, uh, I, and the, I just remember thinking like, well, gosh, you know, like every, everybody is grieving this, you know, obviously my partner at the time just lost, had a massive loss as well. Um, and the grandparents, every, everyone's grieving, but I also felt 
in this weird way, I was like, everyone's grieving and I don't have to take care of any of them. Like, I just felt like this weird, like, okay, like, you know, like this is centered in my body, which isn't to say that my grief is more or less than anyone's, but it's like, it really is in my goddamn body. And now I'm going to have to figure out a lot of weird, practical, physical stuff that sucks. So I'm just going to let everyone have their I, listen, feelings. And I, don't I have to stop you, Michelle, because I, I believe that that happened and that's what you felt. And you even say, and I just want to take this moment to acknowledge how much you care about others. Even the moment where the doctor told you the news and you felt like you didn't want them to feel bad in that bare, in the very, oh, know, really. in the very immediate <laughs> moment. So I, I, I know both those things are true. Uh, I know it's true. I wanted to take care of the ultrasound technician. Cause you know, what horrible news to have to oh give someone. Gosh, I really felt yeah. for them. And she was just like, I'm so sorry. And I'm just like, no, I'm sorry. You know, go on a break, go have a cigarette. I don't know. Go have some coffee. Yeah, it was, it was mm-hmm. hard. And, you know, I reached out to, the people closest to me, my sister, of course, um, my, one of my best friend and one of my, be- my sister's one of my best yeah. friends, but also, uh, another best friend and had asked them, you know, will you please tell anybody? I actually think I reached out to, uh, uh, they took it on themselves to be like, we are contacting everybody who's coming to your wedding and we're letting you know this ha- is happening. I didn't want everybody to come up to me at my wedding and be like, and you're pregnant, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe like, well, not anymore. So, um, so they did that, which was really wonderful. I was really scared that, um, the wedding would be like funeral, right. That it would be really grim and sad. And in my experience, it wasn't, you know, but what's really funny is, you know, I've since been divorced and remarried, and many of the same friends came to my remarriage and they were like, this, this wedding was a lot more fun than Wait, really? I'm like, oh yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Totally. I'm like, I was like, really? Oh God. You guys were just like putting on a brave face for me. Everyone was just sort of oh, like, this, man, is, to- this is sad. Totally oh, the bride's miscarrying right oh. now. Like had to like lay with, you know, progesterone suppositories and my vagina before I the f- wedding to make sure I didn't bleed all over my white J crew wedding dress. Oh, you know, it was just God. like, I feel so let down like, well, by that truth. Illusion. Yeah, the illusion. Because you're right about it. You're like, always joyful. It, and my next question was going to be like, you say when you're writing about your son and and some of like, you know, that time of your life with his littleness and you're sleeping next to him, what is your beautiful line? Can you just give me a second? I want to, you said, um, I could feel the truth of death. And, but in the same writing, you're talking about love being bound in that, you know, the, and this line is, I just love this line so much. You say, this is a love that's got death on its tail. And so I was already setting up this moment to say, you know, what you describe happened at the wedding seemed like just a love fest that was so incredibly perfect and beautiful. And it didn't have, it didn't have the like, you know, dark sadness of this loss. And now you're telling me, well, actually, that's how everybody was, <laughs> that's how everybody was feeling. I mean, but- you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it might be, maybe it could be in retrospect. Yeah. It could be like, oh, compared to the utter unfettered joy of <laughs> yes, my most right. recent, right. my most recent right. wedding. I can't believe I'm a person who says my most recent <laughs> wedding, um, but yeah. I am. And um, so, yeah, you know, maybe it was just like for um, considering what was yeah. happening, it was joyful, yeah. right? And that that was the sort of uh, measure at that time. They were measuring it against maybe what it could yeah, have been rather sure. than, you know, what it would have been had 
had there been, you know, no tragedy happening concurrently. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, 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 but I love my friends for like not letting me know. <laughs> you, <laughs> they really did me a right. kindness, yeah, you, you know. You know, and that's yeah. for sure. And I, I get that. And you're right. Yeah. In comparison, of course, like that loss during that time to have a wedding celebration that doesn't have that's going to be a different kind of joy. Um, but I really felt like in that description, like it's tied to what, and I want to go to this next, um, if it's okay. Um, mm-hmm. and I, and I'm, I'm also just like, can feel how like eager and urgent I am. So sorry if I've been so intensely excited with all the things I want to ask and say, um, it feels unique to being with you. Uh, and so that's a little bit of an acknowledgement, but also like I'm trying to breathe and slow down cause I'm like really enjoying talking <laughs> with you. Um, <laughs> Thank yeah. you. um, you know, it, it actually does feel like that wedding, whatever the next wedding or the other wedding, the most recent wedding felt like, um, it does feel bound. You know, it's like you were in that grief. You have that lot. You were holding that loss, you know, that death. And you got to feel like great love and joy uh, simultaneously. And so it, it's woven, you know, it's, it, it is woven together and probably even emphasized, you know, uh, the, the celebration having that, or, or even being able to like hold it loosely while you're just trying to like enjoy this day that's supposed to be beautiful and celebratory, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel that with your son, maybe like, that's some of what you're talking about too, is like, you both feel this tremendous new experience of like the, your own heart outside of you, the love you have for your, mm-hmm. your child and like immediacy of what I think you write about in that chapter, the immediacy of, of lo- impending loss, you know, like what it means to like mm-hmm. simultaneously know death waits, grief waits because of this love actually, you know, does that feel... Yeah accurate. It's exactly that. Yeah, no, it's exactly that. Yeah, it's exactly Mm. that. It's exactly that. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, it's like, you know, yeah. Oh, just that, you know, there's, there was, uh, something about, and you know, this is also on some level, regardless, regardless of how like, you know, empirically true it may be, there was a, the, the, the feel the, the, the experience of thinking so much about death and, and, and coming to these thoughts, um, was also super hormonal, you know, cause after you yeah. give birth, <laughs> your hormones are so fucked, especially if you had, um, you know, artificial reproductive technologies and we're on, you know, synthetic hormones and all that stuff. So it's like, Whoa, like I was so pumped up with hormones and then had the baby. And then they were, they go below your baseline, your, your natural baseline. And you're just like doom and gloom. And you know, it takes a while for it to build back up like Mm -hmm. a while. But, um, so I was definitely a little bit more, I think, prone to looking at sadness and investigating it. And I don't know, it's really interesting that that happens to people who give birth. It's like, we are biologically wired to give birth and then think about mortality, you know, immediately afterwards, um, you know, Mm -hmm. concurrently with the joy you're like, Whoa, what is it to be human? This is so, this is so Mm -hmm. wild. But, you know, I had been so caught up in the challenge sort of for trying to get pregnant and the happiness and the weird science experiment of my body, you know, through pregnancy, um, that after I had the baby, my son, I was like, Oh wait, this world is actually really horrible. What, what, what have I done? I've actually taken this, uh, creature that I love more than anything I've ever loved in my whole life. And I've placed them on this planet, which is arguably dying, um, filled, you know, even, even the best life 
is marred by grief. It's inescapable. And I just suddenly felt like, Oh my God, like, what have I done? You know? And that like, yeah, grief and pain await this little perfect person. And that's, that's every, that's the story of humanity. That's all of our story. Right. But just to see it in this way and to be suddenly have, having inserted myself into that story in this role was like, Oh yeah. And it's, it's still a lot. It's still, it's, it still hits me all the time. Big gratitude to Michelle for being on the show. If you want to connect up to what Michelle's up to in the world, best way to do it is to go to Michelle's website, michelle-t, you know, like the hot drink, .com, michelle-t.com. And I'll put that link in the show notes, along with other ways to support Michelle, like their Venmo will be there. Send them some cash. Join their Substack. Buy their books. These artists, we artists, I'm going to say we artists, we artists need your support to do more of what we're up to in the world. And Michelle is an example of someone I admire and am inspired by. Nothing will stop them from doing what they do with their work. Like nothing has stopped them. And so why don't we try to make it as easy as possible by offering support in all the ways we can. So go and do that. Go forth and do that. And a reminder, yet again, we rarely do this at the end. So forgive me, but support, you're going to die. Go to our website at www.yg2d.com and find out all the ways to get involved, to be a part of our community, and to support what we do. And you know what? Thank you for listening. We wouldn't be here without your ears. It's true. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.